You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. I hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving with your with your family, with your friends, whoever you had opportunity uh, to eat. But just out of curiosity, how many of you hosted Thanksgiving at your place? How many of you hosted Thanksgiving? All right. Now, some of you raised your hand like, yeah, I did. Some of you are like, yes, I did. Right? Um, and for those of you that, that hosted Thanksgiving, you probably fall in one of two categories. Some of you, you hosted Thanksgiving because you love to have everybody over to your house. You enjoy cooking all the food, having everyone there in your place, eating, making them feel at home. Others of you, you hosted Thanksgiving because nobody else would do it, and somebody had to do it, right? And there's a big difference between those groups of people, right? It's the difference between I have to host Thanksgiving and I get to host Thanksgiving. And what I'm going to show you in Philippians chapter 2 is we wrap up this series of messages on joy from Philippians, is that there's an attitude that, that, that rests underneath all of this, that helps us have this desire when we serve, when we help, when we host, to have this, this attitude of, I get to. Now, before I get there, let me just make it clear that it may be that you have this attitude, that you, you have what Paul is talking about here in Philippians chapter 2, but it's difficult for you to host because it's not what you're gifted at. I believe that God has given all of us a specific set of gifts and abilities and things that we're passionate about, and when we find a way to serve in that manner, it's a joy. And so what I'm going to talk about is kind of the the baseline attitude that all of this is based upon, all of this is founded upon, but building on top of that, finding what it is that God has gifted you to do, finding what it is that, that God has given you a passion for, you'll be able to serve with joy. So for instance... Even if I have the attitude that's listed here in Philippians chapter 2, I would not enjoy hosting everybody for Thanksgiving because the food would be bad, right? I wouldn't think about the things that we need. Like we'd show up and there wouldn't be napkins and plates, that kind of thing. But my wife, she, she has a heart for that and is gifted for it. She has the ability to do it. And so what I'm going to talk about today is kind of the attitude that's underneath and then a building upon that is what's your gift, what's your ability, what is it that you're passionate for? And here in this passage, we see what it is that Paul is encouraging the people to be passionate about. He's encouraging them to love one another. And so I've talked to you about if you're going to enjoy the ride of life, you need to face the front. Forget the things that are in the past. Don't dwell on the mistakes or the accomplishments of the past, but constantly be looking forward to Jesus. Secondly, last week I talked to you about you need to sing along right? As you're on this ride of life, you need to sing along whatever the circumstances might be. Even if the tune on the radio is not one that you would have chosen, sing along. And today I want to encourage you to go together, to go on the joy to ride of life with other people. And it may be that you are at a point right now because you've had your family at your house for three or four days that the last thing you want to do is go anywhere together, that you just want to be alone for an afternoon, right? Because you've been surrounded with people. But I'm talking about having the relationships, having connections with other people so that you can do life together. That's what God's Word constantly calls us to, is doing life together, sharing life. And so Paul wants that for the Philippians. He knows that if they're going to face the difficulties that are ahead, if they're going to remain resilient in adversity, they're going to need one another in that difficulty. And that's what he's speaking towards 
in chapter 2. But to really get a, a grasp or a feeling for what he's saying in chapter 2, I want you to look back at the end of chapter 1. We're going to read the last three verses that lead into that. Paul has just finished talking about that he hopes to come and see them again. And there's a reason that that might not happen because Paul is in prison. And so he's hoping that he'll be able to get out and come see them again, but it might not happen. And he says, if it doesn't, if they keep me in prison for the rest of my life or they take my life, he says, either way, I'm blessed. For, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And what Paul is saying there is like, there's nothing you can do to me that will take my joy because in this life, I get to live for Jesus and in death, I get to see Jesus. Now, Paul isn't treating his life flippantly. He's not acting like his life doesn't matter, like I don't care if I live or die. No, what he's saying is that whatever happens in the future, I'm blessed. God is good. He has a joy that can't be taken even in death. And so on the heels of that, he says in verse 27, let your conversation, and conversation is often used for not just the way that you talk, but the way you conduct yourself, the way that you act, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says, if I get to come or I don't, live in a way that if I'll hear, I'll hear a good report. Verse 28, and nothing terrified by your adversaries which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation that is of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Paul says some really powerful words here. He says, let your life, your conduct, the way that you act, be as such that it becometh the gospel, that it gives good news brings good favor and glory to the gospel, that it is fitting, that the way that you live is fitting to the message of the gospel. Be living the gospel out whether or not I get to come and see you. And if you will do that, don't be terrified of your adversaries. Have peace even in the face of difficulty. And Paul talks to them at length about that later in the letter, and that's what we've looked at in the last couple of weeks. And he says, and if you are, it will be a sign unto those that are against you that they are people of perdition that they're facing the judgment. And it'll be a sign unto you of the salvation of God. Now here's something I really want you to get a hold of before we continue. He says, if you will continue and be steadfast and not act in terror of your adversaries, people will notice and it'll be an indication to them of the truth. But that's not the reason he tells them to do that. He says that's going to happen, but that's not the why or the for what or the because of it, okay? The reason, the why, or the because, the purpose is in verse 29. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake. Paul is not saying, listen, I want you to live right so that everybody else around you will see it. I want you to live right so that other people will see it and it'll convince them. He says, that might happen if you live right. He says, but I want you to live right because that's what God's called you to do. He's given you salvation, and he's also given you suffering. He's given you faith, and he's also given you adversity. And I want you to march through it because that's what God has called you to do. He's not telling them to do it because it works. He's telling them to do it because it is right. Do you see that difference? Because there are times in life 
when we think, I will do this if it helps, or I'll do this if it works, or I'll do this if it brings about a good result. But what Paul is telling them is, do it because it's right, not because of the result. Do it because it's right. And with that in mind, now we can read chapter 2. So look at chapter 2, verses 1 and on with me. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, and when you hear the word bowels, you don't think of what they thought of back then, all right? When they translated this, they were thinking like, man, you really, you feel it, you have a deep passion, all right? They weren't thinking of bowels, they were thinking of you feel it down deep. So if you, if you have a, a real sincere hope and faith and love, there be any bowels and mercies. Fulfill my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Be unified. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of the things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling." For it is God which worketh in both you to will and to do of his good pleasure. And this is hard. Verse 14 is so hard. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Were there some murmurings when you got together with family this week? Was there some disputing when you got... It's hard to live life without murmuring and disputing. That you may be blameless and harmless sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and the service of faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. How does Paul get to that end there, where he talks about rejoicing and joy? Because Paul has found the secret to having great joy in the service of others. Paul has figured out how to find great satisfaction in doing for others. Paul is in prison because he's preached the gospel message to other people. Paul is in prison because he has carried the gospel to other people. Sometimes those people didn't even listen to what he had to say. But Paul has found a way to have joy no matter the outcome, no matter the results, whether people listen to him or they don't whether he ends up in prison or not, whether he's executed or not, he's found a way to have joy because he's found joy in the service, not the results. He's found joy in doing what's right, not in what works. I want to encourage you to find joy in doing what is right. 
find joy in serving, no matter the difficulty or the adversity that you may face. In 1973, a group of researchers uh, led by Mark Lepper and David Green, he, one of from Stanford, one other from the University of Michigan, they did this research project where they, they found preschools that would let them come in and observe their preschools. And in the preschools, they identified students that loved to color when they had free time. And so they would bring those students one by one into a room and say one of three things. They would say, we want you to color, and if you will color this picture, we will give you an award. Or they would say, we want you to color this picture and let them have time to color. Or they would say nothing at all and let them just come in. And what they found is that for the group of children that they told them, if you do this, we will give you a reward that in the weeks following it, when the children had free time to play with blocks or to color or do whatever, they were less likely, less than half as likely, to spend time coloring than they had before. Because the activity of coloring had been tied to this reward, they were not as interested in doing it when there was no promise of a reward. What they found in these preschoolers is the difference between extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. Extrinsic motivation is when somebody gives you a reward to do something, so you do it. Probably like your job. You wouldn't go there tomorrow if they weren't going to pay you. That's extrinsic motivation, right? You feel like you have to. Intrinsic motivation are the things that we derive joy in just the act of doing it. Intrinsic motivation are the things that we say, I get to do these things. I enjoy these things. I would do them if you didn't pay me. I will do them for free. And what Paul is saying here in this passage is, I would serve the Lord whether it works out or it doesn't, whether good things happen or they don't, whether I end up in prison or I don't, whether they execute me or they don't, whether people see my witness and respond or they don't. And God has called us to be people who serve Him, not because it promises great results, but because it is right. And when we experience that, we have a great joy that comes with it. This experiment that they did with the preschoolers, they've also done similar things with adults who they have given rewards if the adults will go and give blood. And the rewards will encourage people to give blood more often, but once the rewards are gone, they no longer give blood as frequently. It makes it less enjoyable for them because they did it for a prize at some point. And maybe there's been something that you love to do, and then you started to do it for a living, and it absolutely ruined it for you, right? Somebody started paying you to do it, and now you don't want to do it anymore. You no longer enjoy it. Intrinsic motivation is something you do because you naturally enjoy it. And when Paul's encouraging the people to serve one another, he's encouraging them to be unified and to care for one another, he doesn't give them a long list of benefits they'll receive if they do this. He doesn't try to promise them rewards that they'll get if they accomplish this. Rather, he tries to shape their hearts so that it is natural for them to serve one another. He tries to shape their hearts so that they're naturally loving and selfless, so they want to help one another. He doesn't say, listen, if you'll do these things, you can count on these results. Rather, he says, you should do these things because they're right. So let me encourage you in the shaping of your heart. This morning, I could stand before you and tell you, listen, if we will serve our community, 
X, Y, and Z will probably happen. If you'll serve your family, X, Y, and Z will probably happen. But those will be empty promises, and they might not pan out, and people not, might not listen to our message, and your family might not appreciate what you did, but if our heart is shaped that we are selfless and loving, we will naturally do it, and not only naturally do it, we will naturally get joy from doing it. We won't be doing it because we have to. We won't be doing it because we'll receive a award if we accomplish it. We'll be doing it because we enjoy doing it. And the difference that it makes in our life is like the difference between taking your kids to the mall because they need a ride and going on a road trip together, right? Taking your kids to the mall because they need a ride is you're just trying to be a taxi service, right? Trying to get them to this place. Going on a road trip as a family is having an enjoyable trip together. And we cannot serve like taxi drivers. We're just accomplishing a task. Rather, our hearts need to be shaped that we are enjoying this, that we get to do this together. So Paul starts by challenging them to have love for one another. He says, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any passion, if there's any mercy, fulfill my joy in that you love one another and you stand unified. He wants them to stand together because if they stand together, they can face whatever it is that comes down there, whatever it is that comes up in life, whatever adversity it is that they face, because they've got one another. He challenges them to be selfless. Paul knows the fruits that he wishes to see in their lives, and so he starts planting seeds of the gospel, because he knows that that will produce the fruit. He doesn't try to manipulate them or guilt trip them into doing these things. He tries to shape their hearts so it becomes the natural result. Now think about this, okay? If you want a lot of apples, the best thing for you to do is to plant an apple orchard, right? Because if you'll plant those trees, they will naturally produce apples. If you want a lot of apples, you shouldn't go buy an orange orchard, right? Because what is, what's an orange tree naturally going to produce? It's going to naturally produce oranges. But what we often do is we try to take people in their current state and wherever they're at and say, these are the things that you ought to be doing. You should feel guilty for producing oranges because you need to produce apples. But what Paul is doing here is instead of trying to convince them to add these things onto their lives, he's trying to show them how their heart can be shaped by love and selflessness so that they naturally produce this unity and service to one another. Once they have this, once they experience this, they'll have joy. Because when we serve others, it brings joy into our lives. Secular fields know this. Corporations know this. That's the reason that they allow their employees oftentimes to go and volunteer on the clock because they know it brings greater job satisfaction. They'll keep them longer. They'll retain them longer. AA knows this. That's the reason that the final step is to serve others and that service work is such a big proponent. Even athletes know this. And that's the reason that so many runs are to benefit others. When we serve others, we experience joy. But Paul doesn't tell them, do it so you get these results. Paul challenges their hearts. He says, love one another. Don't be selfish. Look at these verses with me. Verse 3, he says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. 
Paul gives us some negative points about this to start off with. He says, let nothing be done through strife. He's saying, don't have these misshapen hearts that are going to produce service because it brings you some result. Don't serve out of the, the hope that if I do this for you, then you'll feel obligated to do this for me. That's not service. That's manipulation. And the word that Paul uses here for strife is actually the same word that, that others written, that were writing in the Greek at the same time as Paul. They would use it for, the, for the, a politician. And what a better example of somebody serving others to gain something for themselves, right? Especially around election season, right? I mean, suddenly when it comes around election season, we see pictures of politicians serving in soup kitchens and doing all kinds of wonderful things. Why? Because the election is coming, right? They're hoping that their service will garner them votes. They're hoping that this kindness that they do will bring back some good return. The original word Paul is using here is for politicians or even magicians. Someone who uses a gimmick to get applause. And for somebody that maybe they're not doing kindness so that you vote for them, maybe they're doing kindness so that you praise them. They're doing kindness so that you applaud them. And if our hearts are misshapen to the point that we serve, not because it's right, but because we get results or we get praise or because people talk about how nice we are or how good we are, they'll not find joy in that. They'll constantly be a source of dissatisfaction. If you serve Thanksgiving dinner to your family this week so that they would tell you thank you, probably several of you were very disappointed. Right? Because they ate the Thanksgiving meal, you spent hours on it, and within 20 minutes, it was over, and they were passed out on the couch in front of football, right? And if, and if our motivation is what somebody else is going to give us or the praise that they're going to lavish on us, we will constantly be disappointed. Don't allow anything to be done through strife or vainglory. Don't allow it to be this extrinsic outside motivation. Find joy in the when we serve out of strife or vainglory, it only lasts as long as we can get good results, get the applause that we want. Never lasts. This is true in ministry. It's true in our families. It's got to be coming from the right place. So Paul says, don't serve one another out of strife or vainglory. What's vainglory? Vainglory is, look at me. Look what I'm doing. Hey, did you see that thing that I did? It's when you only give to the homeless person if there's somebody watching. It's where you feed the homeless if you can take a selfie doing it. You're only doing the right thing when there is this vainglory of, hey, look at me, look what I'm accomplishing, look what I am doing. This doesn't last. It's being done through conceit or pride or vanity. It's serving to be seen. It's helping to be noticed. And so he gives us the negative first, and then he says in the positive, in verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. The idea in, in the word esteem is an idea of counting or taking, allowing somebody to take the lead. You're counting someone else first. You're counting someone else as they needed to go first. It's, you go ahead. 
It's, I'm going to let you go first. It's not saying, hey, I'm worthless, so you deserve it. Rather, it's saying, I count you so highly, I want you to have it. And there's a difference between those two. Humility is not thinking of yourself to be just awful. That's not humility. Humility is, ha- is not having a lack of identity. Because in the following verses, when Paul points us to Jesus as an example, Jesus was, was equal with God. He didn't think it was robbery to count himself equal with God, and yet he humbled himself. Jesus was fully clear on who he was, but also humble enough to serve. And so having humility does not mean that you think you are the worst person on the face of the earth. Rather, it's thinking of others first. It's putting them first. It's counting them first. When I lived in Virginia, the church that I attended had a, a large bus ministry. If you're not familiar with bus ministries, we, churches would buy old school buses. and We would drive them out into neighborhoods and pick up people and bring them to church. In the 60s and 70s, this was big because people weren't as mobile. Not everybody had cars, and so you were able to bring people from places where there wasn't a church to a place where there was church. And as time went by, it became more and more a thing that was a ministry to kids and less and less to adults. And so when I was serving in bus ministry in the late 90s and the early 2000s, it was mainly just we would pick up kids. And so my responsibility on leading this bus is I'm a 17-year-old, 16-year-old, and I'm the captain of this bus with another 17-year-old. Our main responsibility when we picked these kids up and took them to church and we took them home is that we didn't leave anybody at church. So that sounds like it's pretty simple. Remember, I was 16 years old. There was a bunch of kids, 40 kids on this bus. And they would often try to go home with their buddy that went on another bus. They, they would try to switch buses on us. So the most important job that I had every Sunday was to get the count right, to count the kids. And so one Sunday, I counted the kids And then it was time to leave, and we had everybody on the bus, and my buddy Justin, who's the other guy helping me on this bus, he counts, and we're too short. He counts again, and we're too short. He counts again, we're too short. We're looking all around. All the other buses have left. There are no kids playing on the playground. We've lost two children. We're not going to go back to the neighborhood with all these kids until we find these two children. And so finally, I count. And when I count, I count the right number. And what we figured out is that I was counting myself and Justin. Justin was only counting the kids. I wasn't, I was counting me. Justin wasn't counting himself and me. And when we are selfless, we're humble, it's not that we don't think anything of ourselves, but rather we're counting others first. We're thinking of them more often. Eugene Peterson uh, translates this verse. He, he translates it this way. Forget yourself long enough to help someone else. The problem is that most of us, the thing that we think about nonstop, 24-7, 365, is me. Me, me, me. And what he's calling us to do here is to think less of ourselves so that we can think more often of others. It's not thinking less of ourselves and thinking that we're not worth anything, that we are low, but rather thinking of ourselves less often and putting others first. Count others first. When I was in junior high, my Sunday school teacher 
He would always, every Sunday morning in Sunday school, when we would take prayer requests, he would say, guys, don't forget that the way to have joy is to put Jesus first, others second, and then yourself. He says, so when we take prayer requests, let's start with prayer requests about Jesus, then others, and then yourself. Jesus, others, yourself. The way to have joy is to put Jesus first, others second, and then yourself. And when we think of ourselves less often and we put others first, we'll serve others and we'll have great joy in doing it. In humility, count others first. And when we do this, it constantly drums into our hearts and minds, it's not about me, it's not about me, it's not about me. And we all need to be reminded that again and again. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me. Think about it this way. You've probably known someone in your life that they made everything about themselves. Right? You didn't have to think very long. Was that person a happy person? Even though they made everything about themselves, even though they always looked after their own interests first, they constantly thought of themselves. They constantly put themselves first, and yet they're not happy. It doesn't work. And when our hearts are shaped so that we think of ourselves less often than we think of others, when we put Jesus first, others second, and then ourselves, we have great joy. And so Paul gives us this this understanding of the mindset that we should have, and then he gives us a great example that we should follow. Look at verse 5. Let this mind be in you. So he's just given us the mindset that we need to have. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Was made in the likeness of men, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Paul says, have this mindset, and the best example of this is Jesus himself, who was at the, the, the right hand of the Father, was at the throne in heaven above all others, and he came down to be as one of us. Hebrews chapter 12 And verse 2 says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, set aside his weight of glory. Why did he do it? He chose others. He chose us. God in heaven, for the joy set before him, served us, became our servant. And not just any servant, a servant obedient unto death for us. And we have that same heart. We can choose things that are hard. We can choose to serve others. We can choose to do for others and do it with joy. We can have this task set before us and have the gall, the audacity to call it joy. To have this great task ahead of us and instead of saying, this is something that I have to do, say, this is something I get to do. It's a joy that God has set before me. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, set aside his place in glory and came in the likeness of a man. Now to us, that that may not sound like an important phrase, but for Jesus to set aside glory and 
and the likeness of men, that was a major downgrade. If you've ever rented a car, you know that when you go to get your car, there's often a little bit of ambiguity about what car you're going to get, right? You're hoping you get a nice one, and then you get there, and all they got is that little two-door that doesn't have cruise control. That is a major downgrade. When Jesus came and was made into the likeness of men, that was a major downgrade. Stepped into a body that felt exhaustion and hunger, stepped into a body that could suffer death, and he became obedient to that. He stepped into that even unto death. Why? To serve us. And he found joy in it. One of our values here at Faith Church is that we go too far like Jesus did. Because oftentimes when we're serving people, like, well, that's, that's what's normal. That's what's reasonable. That's what could be considered. But when Jesus served us, he didn't do what was normal or what would be reasonable. He did the utmost. He did all. He gave everything for us. He stepped into the likeness of men and gave himself as a sacrifice to us for us. And so when we serve, we go too far because that's what Jesus did. We'll go beyond what is normal or reasonable or considered to be adequate because Jesus did. And he found it to be a joy. Can I tell you something? If God works in your heart and reshapes it, and you find what it is that God has called you to do, the area that he's called you to make a difference, when you lay your head down at night, you can have this great contentment and joy knowing, I served my purpose. I made a difference. On Thanksgiving evening, some of you laid down and you went right to sleep because you were exhausted from hosting everybody and your family's just super tiring and they just take it out of you. But some of you, you laid down because that's what you're gifted for and that's what you love. You laid down and you were just content that you'd had everybody together. When Paul laid his head down on whatever he had fashioned as a pillow in that prison cell, he was content because he knew what he had done, what God called him to do. Not because it brought great results, because it was what God called him to. And for the joy set before him, he served in that way. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.